Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning and your presence here with us as we gather to worship you. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word today, not only to hear it, but to live it out. Would you shape and transform us? We thank you for the work that you are doing in our lives and in our church and in our city. And we pray that you would bring encouragement and uh, grace and hope to our hearts today in your name. Amen. If you are new or you're visiting or uh, just joining us today, perhaps for the first time in a bit or the first time ever, we are picking up a sermon series that we started back at the beginning of May and continuing through the book of Daniel. So as a quick refresher, Daniel is largely about describing the aftermath of when uh, the Babylonian Empire came and attacked Judea, the nation of Judah, and took away people into captivity. They plundered things. They took a bunch of the royal house back with them to Babylon. And among that royal house are Daniel and his three friends, who you probably know their Babylonian names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament. And the book primarily explores, <clears throat> pardon me, this idea of how to be faithful to God in a nation that has no interest in being faithful to God or a foreign nation that's against God. That's largely the first half of the book, and then the last half of Daniel has to do with some of Daniel's visions and uh, thoughts about the future and whatnot. But the larger narrative section, which we're still in, uh, is about trying to live faithfully for God in this nation. And one of the things we discussed a few weeks ago was the way in which they are called to actually seek the good of the nation that they've been put in. Even though they're captives, even though these same people have attacked and destroyed their homes and likely killed friends and family members, rather than hating their oppressors for what they've done, they're called to work for the welfare of this foreign nation because in its prosperity and in its peace, so too they will know peace. And the implications of that for our lives are actually fairly clear. I think there's a, a pretty easy parallel there for us when we realize that Canada is, is far from any sort of Christian nation in that sense. We have all sorts of laws that actively celebrate sin and we have all sorts of ideologies that are espoused in our, in our government or in our education, for instance, that are radically opposed to God and to his ways. And how does the church respond then to living in that context? And I'd like to suggest that we, like the Judean exiles, are called to be a loving witness in the midst of that nation and to pray for it and to actively seek its good by doing our part to live out the compassion and the life and the love of God, which means calling people to Jesus and inviting people out of their sin into the life of God. And we do that like Jesus in a way that's full of grace and truth, as John describes Jesus in John 1. We do that with a love and a care for people. That's the grace part, but we also do it truthfully, meaning we don't compromise on what the gospel is. We don't water it down. And so in short, Daniel reminds us that the call as Christians when living in difficult nations is not to flee the world and just sort of evacuate and leave everything 
It's also not to become exactly like the world where there's no differentiation at all between the non-Christian and the Christian, but rather we are called as followers of Jesus to be instruments or agents of his transformation in the world where we've been planted in the midst of those very systems that are often very difficult to navigate. You think of what Paul says in Romans 12, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that's very much what Daniel ends up living out here, that he doesn't look like Babylon around him. And same for us as well. But notice that Paul does not say, be not conformed to this world, so therefore abandon it altogether. Right? He says, no, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can prove the good will of God. Well, prove it to who? What's the point of living that out? Well, sure, there's benefit personally, but it's meant to be something that is seen by those who do not yet know. And so Paul envisions us as disciples being transformed by Jesus, having our hearts and our minds renewed and empowered by the Spirit, so that as we head into the world to our various workplaces, wherever you may work or study or into your family life or whatever that might be, we're called to live out the way of Jesus in that place. And of course, Paul is picking up Jesus' own words from Matthew 5.16, right? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The way in which you live your life is meant to have an impact on those who do not know God and point them to Jesus. And so Daniel is a reminder for us of that call to a missional sort of life, that our day-to-day -day lives can be like signposts that point people to something. Your life will point people to something, and you can choose whether it points to Jesus or not. And that theme relates pretty closely, I think, to Daniel's actions here in chapter 6, right? Where Daniel has to choose God and loyalty to God and faithfulness to God over the pressures of his culture, over facing the wrath of his enemies and facing that potential danger in Daniel's mind is far better than to deny God. And now let's think about this episode itself. Of course, we didn't read the whole thing, but the whole chapter plays out of, I assume a lot of us are familiar with this, but I know not everyone is, is Daniel blatantly disobeys the law and continues to be faithful to God and runs into trouble for that. And the episode is set up very similarly to Daniel 3. If you remember in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with a similar situation where they have to either uh, bow down and worship the king and his idol or face the fiery furnace. And they say, well, it's better we face the furnace than deny God. And so they're thrown into the furnace and God delivers them. And now in a very similar way, Daniel is facing that same decision. Does he worship or uh, give allegiance to something that's not God and be safe? Or does he ignore the potential fallout and remain faithful to God and chooses faithfulness and gets thrown into the lions and God is again faithful. But rather than looking at the whole passage, and, and I think we've talked a lot about God's faithfulness 
in those sorts of moments a few times in Daniel, because it's a theme that comes up a few times. I want to look particularly at Daniel's character. So if you look with me again at verse 3 of Daniel 6. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel's at a point now in his life where he is, uh, we've transferred from him working for Babylon. Now he's working for Medo-Persia. Slightly different empire. One came in, took over the other guy, but kept a lot of the same officials sort of working underneath, right? So Daniel's job, sort of the letterhead changes, but his job basically stays the same, his job description. And the king wants to elevate him even further uh, into one of these three official roles. And of those three, he's even kind of beyond that. And the king thinks, I'll just set him up over the whole, over the whole thing. He's, he's awesome at this. He's distinguished above the other officials because, and what does the text say? An excellent spirit was in him. Daniel's, Daniel's probably in his 80s at this point. He's been working for about 70 years, so he's put in some time. <laughs> he's really good at this. He's so good, the king says, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll promote you again. Like, I'm not ready for you to retire. Let's keep going, right? And in response to that favor, the other administrators start to plot against Daniel. And who, who knows, right? Like, likely they're jealous of him, of how awesome he is at this stuff. We don't know. Um, but they know that the only place of weakness, they can't get at him because he's not good at his job, because he's too good at it, right? They can't say, like, well, he's been slacking off. The only place they know they can try and get him is in some matter related to his faith, something related to his God, something that'll challenge his loyalty to God and make him look bad. So again, that's why they get the king to, to pass the royal edict. I think it's worth us noting just briefly that seeking to live faithfully for God will likely generate some enemies along the way. And I think most of you who, who, who are involved in workplaces, and, and maybe you're the only sort of Christian there, you know what that's like to try to to live faithfully for Jesus, and, and there's other sort of pressures or forces at work in that place, and it can be really, really difficult. And that's, that is, you're, you're in good company, right? When we seek to live with loyalty and, and faithfulness to Jesus and a compassion and a humility and to do our work well, um, that will butt up against uh, other forces at work in our world. It's also in those moments, however, that you have the opportunity to point people to Jesus. So the officials are, are quite jealous of Daniel's good track record. And his faithfulness to God so stirs them up, he discovers he soon has pretty powerful adversaries in the workplace. And it may have been, a few different commentators have mentioned this, it may have been that Daniel's uh, sort of incorruptibility could have been holding the other officials back from sort of gaining what they had hoped to gain. You know, they couldn't sort of play the system in a way because Daniel was just so up, up, upright about everything. Or maybe it's because he's Jewish, and they're like, we don't like you because you're Jewish. You know, that could be part of it. Or because he's 80. Like, we think you're too old to be in charge. We're done with you. You know, it could be any of those reasons. But they know the only way to undo this guy is to hit him in the area of his God, right? Look at verse 4. It says, he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. And then the men said, we won't find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection 
with the law of his God. And so it says in verse 6, they come together in agreement uh, to, to see the king, by agreement to the king, and they say to him, and that phrase by agreement is the same sort of phrase in Hebrew that's used in Psalm 2 to describe the nations coming angrily together to oppose God. It's that same sort of idea of uh, noisy assembling against the Lord. And so they get the king to sign the edict, right? So the edict is you can't petition anyone, any God or any person, anything other than the king. You can't, you can't worship anyone. You can't really ask for anything other than to the king himself. And it's likely Darius, the king, isn't thinking of this as a sort of a religious act. He's likely thinking of it politically uh, in, in an attempt to sort of unify the kingdom. Like, yeah, I, I should be the sole mediator to these people. And so, yeah, they should go through me, right? He's likely not thinking about how it's going to affect Daniel because his actions afterwards are he's so worried that Daniel's going to be killed uh, in the lion's den that he tries to undo the thing. He realizes he's been played. He likely doesn't perceive that immediate threat. Now, verse 8 is interesting, right? They say, King, establish the injunction, sign the document so it can't be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians which cannot be revoked. And you think, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because why can't the king just make another injunction to change the injunction that he, that he had? Is he, right? like, why, isn't he the king? Uh, the idea, as I was sort of studying this, is, is that there was such a sense in which the king's words were sovereign and permanent that if he was to change his mind, it really, uh, it really looks bad. And so there is this understanding that what the king says is set. Why would he change his mind, right? It's, it, it sets up this situation where the king is, gets almost caught, right, in, in his own words. He would lose an incredible amount of credibility if he issues a sort of counter-edict. Now, before we get again to the response, which I love, and, and I like that we ended on verse 10, because in response to all this drama at work, Daniel just goes home and prays. He's like, I'm done. I'm just going to go home and pray and just keep going. I'm going to leave my windows open. <laughs> He's like, whatever. But I want to go back again to how Daniel's described with this excellence of spirit. And the text really stresses this point of this sort of outstanding personal integrity that Daniel has. This, and this sort of professional competence that Daniel has as well, right? He's, he's, he's not just a nice guy. He's, he's also like really good at his job. He's really good at it. He has a quality of character. We might say that he's virtuous. He's virtuous. Virtue is, is having a behavior that shows a high moral standard. We could say it's a courage, a moral goodness. And virtue emerges in a person's life when they make habitual choices to do the right thing so that eventually uh, that just starts to sort of come naturally in some sense that we choose the way of wisdom. We could say that virtue is about responding to the Spirit of God in our lives and allowing Him to shape us. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, and peace, and patience, and so on, we're describing a person of virtue, a person who has chosen to live out those qualities. Uh, N.T. Wright, who's a, a New Testament pastor and, and theologian, he puts it this way. He says, virtue in this sense is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration 
to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't always come naturally. And then on that thousand and one first time, when it really matters, they find that they do what's required almost automatically, as we would say. And in his book, After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters, Wright goes on to describe uh, the incident that's called the Miracle on the Hudson. Many of you would remember this. Back in January of 2009, uh, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from New York and lost all power in the engines, and they had to kind of coast the plane down, and it landed. Uh, they lost all power, and they had to do an emergency landing in the low altitude, and the pilots glided the plane uh, to a ditching in the Hudson River, just off of Midtown Manhattan. And because of the pilot's behavior with the flight, all 155 people on board were rescued. No one died. There were some injuries, but no one died. And Wright says, Christian character or virtue is like that. These pilots would have had deeply ingrained habits of how to fly their plane. They have the skill to know how to do it. It's in their bones, you might say. There was a long time familiarity with how to fly. And then when the moment of crisis came, their instincts could kick in. And the habits that they had formed, along with their composure in that emergency, allowed them to glide that plane to safety and to save people. And in the same way, says Wright, and I think Daniel embodies this for us this morning, as Christians, we are called to be growing steadily in learning the way of Jesus and how to respond to the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to follow Him and to develop a life of prayer and worship and witness so much that that starts to become ingrained in the bones, we could say, so that when a moment of crisis happens and when the engine loses power in your life, you can lean on to those long-formed habits, and rather than just abandon ship because all seems lost, we continue to follow Jesus in the way that he calls us to go. And Daniel does that here as well. There's a life that we can aspire to, that when he is faced with a life-and-death situation, he continues on in the way of prayer, and in the way of faithfulness that he has set up for himself in a long life of following God. And I think for us, we might also say, what a, a good thing to strive for, that we would be thought of as someone with an excellence of spirit in what we did and in, in what we made our lives about. And so the crisis comes, and Daniel is able to stand and respond faithfully, and to bring, I mean, I'm sure it was terrifying in some sense, to bring his worries and his hopes and his anxieties to God and give them over to God and trust in God's goodness whatever may come his way. It reminds me of the old hymn, Be Thou My Vision, which says, heart of my, art, my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Whatever happens, you're still in charge, God. So again, what's Daniel's response to all the workplace drama? Verse 10, once he knows the document was signed, he goes right on doing what he's been doing. He has the windows open to face Jerusalem to remember what they've lost, right? He gets down on his knees, 
just like he did each day, three times a day, and he prays, and he thanks God just as he's always done. And I think there's a, a pattern there for us to remember in our own lives that when crisis comes and when we feel lost and whatever might be going on or the sickness comes or evil rears its head or we feel abandoned or we feel betrayed, we can bring it to God and leave the windows of our hearts open to Jerusalem, we might say, open to God and learn to rest in his grace and his goodness. Uh, come what may. So what are some of the implications of that for us? Well, I think the first thing, and I've said it several times, is, is to seek to have an excellence of spirit in our lives, in our daily lives. And that's worth asking then, well, what's the task that God has given you? What is the thing uh, that's in your hands? Are you, what are the roles in your life? Are you a husband or a wife? Are you an aunt or an uncle? Are you a grandfather or a grandmother? Are you a caregiver to someone in some way? Do you have a job, whether you like it or not? Do, do you have a, a, something that you're working at? Are you a student? Maybe you're studying in this season. Whatever the roles you might have in your life, whatever the task is, we're called to pursue that with excellence, to seek to do that well for the glory of God. So much so that we could say that our work and our relationships and the way we approach those can actually be an act of worship towards God. We don't just do these things because we have to, though sometimes it certainly can feel that way, depending on, on the work, I know. But Daniel sought an excellence in his work, and so too can we. And at the same time, that excellence of spirit is a gift of the Holy Spirit itself. That when we're faced with the choice of being faithful to God or bowing to another, we can lean on God's presence in our lives and turn to him and find comfort and hope when things are difficult. Not if things get difficult, but when they do. And that leads me to that second point, which is again worth noting, is that there is real hardship and real struggle in our lives. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. And so we should not be surprised when the nations rage or evil rears its head or people are plotting. We don't need to let that overwhelm us because Jesus told us that's going to happen. But we can also rest in the remainder of that promise where Jesus says, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. That as much as we may be uh, given to our own anxieties or our own fears of what's happening, around us or within us, Jesus says, I've got that. Come and lean on me, and I'll carry you through. And thirdly, Daniel displays a measure of virtue here, and that's worth noting, but let's be honest. No, no particular character in the Bible is, a, is really the hero of the story. They all have tremendous faults. They all have all kinds of brokenness and sin that they deal with, even the best of them, like Moses kills somebody, Daniel, man after God's own heart, commits adultery, kills somebody. These are deeply flawed and broken people, and Daniel's no different. And I was reminded, even as I, even as I encouraged us to think of Daniel and his excellence of spirit, I was reminded again, the true hero of the biblical story is God himself. 
and no amount of virtue in and of ourselves, no matter how we might seek to live for God, no amount of virtue can actually still the lions. Only God. And God alone is the hero of the story. At the end of the chapter, we didn't read it, but at the end of chapter 6, Daniel saved, and the, and the king, the king who's had a terrible night's sleep because uh, he's so worried about Daniel, rushes out and uh, to see if Daniel's alive. And Daniel's probably had a way better sleep than the king has because uh, he's been totally fine. And uh, the king comes out and realizes Daniel's safe, and he is so thrilled, and he realizes God's, uh, you know, Daniel's God is, is real and has saved him. And he, uh, he does something really terrible in response to that. He, he's clearly not totally converted from this story. He throws in, first he throws in uh, the ones who tried to corner Daniel, throws them into the lion's den, and they get eaten. But then he throws their, their families in, too. And uh, that was known in Persia. They were just terrible. Just really, really deadly. Uh, just sort of a ruthlessness. Like, if, if you tried to get someone cornered on something and, and they realized you were being really slippery about it, they would just turn around and, and give you the thing that you were trying to do to that person. So they get the lions. And then at the end, King Darius writes to all the people, and he sounds a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar, but not quite. And notice what he says, verse 25, this is chapter 6, 25. King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Which, I don't know how he managed that, but, <laughs> but he's trying to get everybody. This is a mass email to all, right? And he says, peace be multiplied to you. Really? You just threw people to the lion's den. Like, there's blood on your hands. Peace be multiplied to you. But at least he's trying, right? And again, this is the flawed nature of, of so many of these characters. And I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. And then he praises God. And actually, what he says is, is really good. Um, but he's trying to force people into, into worshiping God, which just doesn't work. This just doesn't work that way. You can't just force people into becoming Christians. It just doesn't work. You can't force people into a relationship, right? And so Darius tries, but you can still see his own brokenness uh, present. And I was thinking about that. Here's King Darius with blood on his hands. He's declaring peace well, to all the world, at least in Medo-Persia. And he seeks to enforce people's faith in Yahweh. But I think as Christians, we know. We know that many centuries later, another king came declaring peace. Not just to one nation, but to all nations. And he's not the king who issues edicts from his palace, from some sort of ivory tower. He's the king that's born in the dirt and the grime of the poor. And unlike Darius, this king does not come to throw others to their deaths, but comes himself to bear the accusations of his enemies. So much so that he'll take on the sin and the violence and the hatred of all. And rather than being saved from death, that king will willingly give himself over to death so that all who feel that they are still in a den of lions can be set free and forgiven. And so that all who feel in some sense that they are abandoned in Babylon and all who look through their windows each day looking and praying for hope and restoration can at last know 
the forgiveness of their sins because one true king came and laid down his own life for them. And that king is alive this morning. And he calls us out of our lion's dens and calls to us from our open windows with his mercy and his grace. And that king is Jesus. And so this morning, let's pray to that end that we would turn our hearts to the one true king and let him work his grace and his hope in our lives. And pray that we, like Daniel, would seek to become people of virtue and of good character, not by somehow drumming that up on our own, but, but by responding to life and the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you that you came. And where all of us are so broken, where all of us would seek to do what's, what's right, but so often get that wrong, Jesus, we thank you that you came and that by your death and your resurrection, you've set us free, that you've given us new life. Lord, we are lost and enslaved in our sin without you. We're on a road that leads to death without you. We're in that lion's den without you. But Jesus, you came, and you invite us out, and you invite us home. And Lord, I pray this morning, there's so many needs represented here and, and so much going on in each of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us, like Daniel, to trust in you when we feel like we're in a lion's den or when we're living in a foreign nation that's, that's very difficult to navigate. And I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would be at work in our hearts so that we would grow in virtue and in excellence of character in the fruit of your Spirit. Lord, that we could respond to the issues around us with your grace and your hope and your wisdom. Lord, that uh, we know that might invite uh, issues from other people. It certainly did for Daniel. Jesus, it's, it certainly did for you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we seek to walk with you and uh, navigate the issues around us, Lord, would you, would you come alongside us and give us your hope and your guidance? Uh, would you light the way? Lord, I think of, of all of us have those in our families who don't know you, friends or relatives. And Jesus, we pray today that you would uh, open their hearts, Lord, to receive that you would use us, Lord, to be an example and a witness for you in the place where you planted us. Lord, I thank you that um, Daniel reminds us that it is possible to live for you, even when it is really hard. And Lord, our text this morning reminds us, too, of your faithfulness and your grace uh, of the miraculous, Lord, when things seem hopeless. So Jesus, I thank you that you know each of our situations that you care for us, and uh, Lord, you, you have a good plan and purpose for us. So help us to trust you, Lord. I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for those that are here and those that can't be here. Lord, would you bless them? Would you help us to have courage to live for you and to walk with you? Lord, for those who are feeling hopeless today or feeling discouraged, would you come with your grace and your peace to bring uh, your life and your hope today. And with the words he taught us, Lord, we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Love to speak the benediction over you before you go. If you'd like prayer this morning, um, I'd love to pray with you. And there'll be others as well who would love to take time to pray with you. Children of God who are loved and who are forgiven by our Lord Jesus Christ, may you be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit of God that you may have an excellence of character for the life and for the work that he's called you to. And may you rest and trust in the love of Jesus that whatever you might face, be it den of lions or difficult of work or difficulty in relationship, may you know that Jesus has got you and he cares for you and he will see you through. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. I love you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Bless you.